welcome you. Thank you. Happy New Year to you all. It's 2015. Off to a good start, I hope. We had a great time in Arizona with our daughter, except that it snowed out there. I went to get away from the snow and ended up getting snowed on, but it was really a blessing to be with our grandkids and all of our family. It's been a long time since all the kids were together, so we really were blessed and had a great time. So, good to be back with everybody. I'm excited about the new year. We're beginning a new series from the book of Genesis called Faith of Our Fathers. We're going to sing a hymn this month that talks about the, the faith of our fathers. And it's really good sometimes to go back to the beginning and take a look at the way the world was founded and how God formed the nation of Israel. But before we do that, I wanted to take a moment. When the New Testament church gathers, they always gathered for four things. Acts 2 says they devote themselves to fellowship, teaching, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Sometimes when we get a larger assembly, we sort of neglect prayer. It's easy to sort of go, oh, we don't have time for prayer. But to, to, to get that mindset that we don't have time for prayer is, is to mismanage our, our stewardship of the gospel and to go, wait a minute, we always have time for prayer. We need much more prayer in our church and as families and individuals. So what I want to invite you to do is corporate prayer is kind of hard because while one person is praying, the rest of us are to be agreeing together. In fact, in the early church, in the book of Corinthians, it says, when one person gives thanks, the other person says amen. The word amen doesn't mean the end. It doesn't mean, okay, prayer is over. It, it, it's a, it comes from a Hebrew word that means let it be. It, it's, it's the idea that you're agreeing. And so I saw this uh, humorously illustrated this um, week with my granddaughter. She's three years old. And remember when you were three, if you do, you weren't into prayer that much. And when people were praying, that was just like a distraction. So, you, you know, they're slowing down. I want to eat. And, you know, so before we left, I said, let's have a family time of prayer. And so we all circled up. We're all standing there. And my son-in-law is holding my three-year-old granddaughter next to me. Of course, she's just learning our prayer. So she only knows one aspect of amen. And, of course, she wants this thing to get over so we can get back to real life, right? So my son-in-law was praying, and I'm quietly listening, and I go, amen. And she goes, he said amen. Like, that's it. He said it. That's it. You can't do that twice. And I, I just didn't. I was like, this isn't the time to teach her that amen doesn't mean. It's kind of like when, when I say my last point. That doesn't mean I'm going to stop anytime soon. Right? So, um, but for prayer, when, while I'm praying, I want you to pray with me. That The Bible says that the church would pray of one accord. We're of the same mind. We're, we're one body, one family, one mouth. Offering our prayers to God. This morning, what I want us to pray is, um, the Apostle Paul often prayed for spiritual growth among the, the, the local churches. And for the Philippian church, there's a beautiful prayer that he prayed. And there's a couple things I want us to pray about. In Philippians 1.9, he says, I pray that your love will abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. So we're going to pray this year we're going to grow in love. Real, practical, tangible fruitful, evident love, which means we're going to be more patient, more kind, more loving, more sacrificial, more long-suffering, more forgiving. So he says, I pray that your love will abound, that's knowledge and discernment. So as we get to know how much Christ loves us, we're praying that we will be more loving to our spouses, to our children, to our enemies, to annoying people. Hopefully that's not the same as your spouse, but um, we're just going to pray that our love will abound. And then secondly, he says, so that you will approve the things that are excellent and be sincere and blameless. 
So we're going to pray that we'll, we'll make wise decisions this year. That based on love for God and others, that the decisions that we make, because a lot of decisions in life aren't right or wrong. They're good, better, and best. And so Paul says, I want you to approve and discern the things that are excellent. So what you do with your free time, what we do with our money, what we do with our recreation, how we spend time with our family, our job search, young people as you go back to school and so forth, that, that we will make good decisions, wise, prayerful decisions, approving the things that are excellent, which again, taking time to reflect, and that might mean some changes in our giving or our, our, our service to Christ or habits or maybe I'm not going to spend nine hours on Facebook or 12 hours watching football or whatever, but I really want to approve the things that are excellent. Then, then Paul says that you might be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. So, so we're going to pray that the, the, the righteousness and the life of Christ will flow out from us. Christianity is not manufactured. It's fruit. It's miraculous. It's the fruit of Christ shaping our lives and then living through us. And then he says, ultimately, it's for the glory and praise of God. So God will be pleased and honored if we grow in love, making good decisions, and allowing Christ to work through us to bear his fruit and to change us. So join me as we pray for that this morning. Father, we come to you as your family, as your children, as those who have been washed in the blood of Christ, those who have been renewed into the image of Jesus. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the gospel, the hope of eternal life, the forgiveness of our sins, the communion that we just participated as we wait for Christ to return. And as a church, we pray, and as individuals, we pray that our love will abound. We confess that we are all more selfish than we should be. And we want to abound and grow in love. We want to have a wise and scripturally informed love that's discerning. Help us to be patient and loving to our spouses, our friends, our family, and especially with our enemies. May our church be known as a church of real, practical, tangible love that only comes from the Spirit. We pray that we will have wisdom and approve things that are excellent. And we will lay aside any encumbrance, any poor decisions that are, that are hindering us from being what Christ wants us to be. Help us to invest our time well in prayer and spiritual things that, that matter for eternity. And then, Lord, we pray that the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ will, will be born in our lives. We want to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. We want Christ to be more and more exalted in us and less and less for it to be about us. May that fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ living in us bring glory to you. May we remember that each day to live as Christ and to die as gain. And now as we turn to your word, we ask that the Spirit will feed, strengthen, encourage, quicken and awaken and convert and accomplish your purposes. We know we cannot live by bread alone, and we thank you that your word will feed us. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I want you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Our ushers are coming at this time. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. It's really exciting. We're having more and more people who are coming from backgrounds that they haven't really read the Bible. In fact, we had almost a thousand people, a thousand adults here on on Christmas Eve. And Many, many people are seeking and exploring, and I really believe that that's a work of God, the Holy Spirit, 
there are people who are just coming in the doors. No one invited them. God is just at work. And we need to continue to pray that the Lord will bless His Word and change people's lives. But as Christians, we're being built up and we're growing in the Lord. And we study as much as possible, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. So we're starting this new series on the book of Genesis. Now, as I mentioned, whenever you start a new book of the Bible, you want to learn some background. That's why I want to encourage you to get a study Bible. In fact, one of our new converts was showing me her new MacArthur study Bible this morning. We sell them in the back. We don't make any profit off of them. But a study Bible will give you the background. Just like when you go to a bookstore, you read the preface, the table of contents, maybe a few comments, so you're not like lost when you start reading the book. So when you look up a, a, in a study Bible, it'll tell you who wrote the book, when it was written, what are the themes, what are some key principles in there, and then maybe just a big picture outline. And so if you were to do that with the book of Genesis, again, for some of you, this is just a reminder, but Genesis is part of a unit of the Bible, the first five books that are sometimes called the Torah. It's Genesis to Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, or sometimes it's called the Law. And in our English Bible, the Old Testament is broken down into the Law, the first five books, and then the history books, which are Joshua through Esther. There's 12 of them. Then the poetry books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, there's five of them. And then finally, the prophets, the major and minor prophets. But remember, we've seen that the Old Testament was preparation for the coming of the Redeemer. And so the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. It was written by Moses because he's, he's, he's going to present this to the children of Israel, much of what had been probably already orally passed on, but now was inspired by God to, to be written down. As they were about to enter the promised land, it was important for them to rehearse their roots, where they came from, and their connection with the nation of Israel. Now, theologians have often broken up the Bible, or book, the book of Genesis, into a, a number of different ways to look at it. For example, there are ten times in the book of Genesis that it says, these are the generations of. And so, if you really want to get technical, you could divide the book into ten sections, each beginning with, these are the generations of. Another way it's been looked at is um, Genesis 1 through 11 is sometimes called primeval history, and then 12 through 50 is the patriarchal, the, the, the history of our fathers. Or, some have looked at the book of Genesis from a chronological standpoint. So Genesis 1 through 11 really takes place in Mesopotamia, which is kind of where modern-day uh, Babylon is, or Iraq. So Genesis 1 through 11 is in Mesopotamia. Genesis 12 through 35 would be in the Promised Land, in what we would now call Israel. And then Genesis 36 through 50 is down in Egypt. But what I think would probably be the easiest way, and so this is what I'm going to use, the easiest way I think to understand the book of Genesis is to think of it as having three sections. Chapters 1 through 3, I'm going to call the creation and the fall. We're going to go over that, the creation and the fall. But then in chapters 4 through chapter 11, we sort of have this, this display of the effects of the fall. So we have corruption... Then we have a flood, and then we have the conclusion that, that's brought about to the scattering of the nations and their languages. So, 1 through 3, creation and fall. 4 through 11, corruption, the flood, and confusion. And that's a long period of time. That's thousands of years. But beginning in chapter 12 through 50, the rest of the book, it's the creation of God's nation. It's God's calling out Abraham and forming this nation of Israel who would be blessed 
in order to bless the nation. So, creation and fall, corruption and, let me think, corruption and a flood and confusion, and then the formation of a nation. So this morning we're going to look at chapter 1 within the broader framework of Genesis 1 through 3. So we'll put the text up there. We pray for the spiritual enablement. And there's so much that could be said about this, but some of you have never read the Bible. Many of you have read this many times. But I want to remind you that the Scriptures are alive and powerful. So um, sometimes people go, oh, I already read that. And it's like, well, do you do that with your favorite song on the radio? When it comes on, you go, oh, I already heard this. And you turn it off. Or you look again because God has things that he wants to continue to inform us about. And so my purpose here is not to do a scientific study of this chapter, though it would be worthwhile, but simply to say, all right, how does this fit into the big picture and how important it is for us to go back to our roots and understand what Scripture says about creation. So we'll start in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, a couple things I want to talk about here. First of all, we don't really know when the beginning was. In fact, we turn to the New Testament, it says, in the beginning was the Word. We just know that this was the beginning of, of time and the beginning of God's act of creation. The Bible says, from everlasting to everlasting, God has existed. So there never was a time that He didn't exist, but there was a punctiliar point in what we would consider time when God decided to create a heaven and an earth. We learn from the New Testament that it was actually through the second person of the Triune God that this mediation of creation took place. It says all things came into being by Christ. But the interesting thing is, is that it would have been really easy because of God's unlimited power to simply go, let it be. And everything was done. Everything was just perfect, right? But for reasons known only to God, he decided to do two things. Number one, he decided to take six days. I want to talk about why he chose to do it in six days. But number two, and this is kind of interesting, is why did he decide to start with this sort of chaotic, formless body of water and darkness? Why didn't he just speak? Now, people have tried to, to read into this. For example, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who uh, was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian down in Philly, taught that there was a great gap of time between verse 1 and 2. So, God created the heavens of the earth, and for millions of years there was this pre-Adamic race of angels and creatures and and then God destroyed it all with this darkness and flood. This isn't the flood of Noah, but a separate antediluvian flood. And so, so God then, in verse 3, began to recreate this destroyed creation. That's called the gap period. There's this gap of time. Now, part of the reason for that is because as modern science has sort of evolved, there has been this pressure from scientists to say the earth is millions of years old. It's got to be. It's got to be. It's a this undisputed fact that the earth is millions and billions of years old. And I want to suggest that, number one, that's not, a, that's not a provable proposition. There's no way to absolutely prove that. It's possible, but it's not provable. And that's why when people talk about creation versus science, they're like, creation is just religion, but science is fact. But when it comes to origins, one of the things we need to be honest about is to recognize that we're all looking at the same evidence, right? We're all looking at creation. No one can go back and, and, and you know, play the tape. So we simply form a worldview 
based on the evidence. And there are two broad worldviews as to how we got here. One is a theistic worldview, that there's a God, and that God, this intelligent designer, created us. The other view is often referred to as a naturalistic worldview. And again, there's a lot of unanswered questions. A naturalistic worldview has this assumption that matter is either eternal, so matter has just always existed, which again leaves a big question mark. What, what caused matter or where did it come from? And that somehow, without any, any intervention from a god, we sort of randomly came into existence. Now, both of them are theories, the theory of creation or the theory of naturalistic formation. Both of them have to be embraced by faith. So when people say, well, science is fact, it's not. Some science is fact, but when it's talking about creation, science deals with things that can be demonstrated and empirically proven and seen. No one can demonstrate and empirically prove or create life. So again, as you pick a worldview, where did you come from? We certainly have the option of saying I'm theistic or I'm naturalistic. But the Bible clearly says we came from God and He created us. However, what many Christians have tried to do is somehow reconcile scientific claims with Scripture. And if I have the assumption that the earth is millions or billions of years old, that oftentimes what, what Christians attempt to do then is to somehow read Genesis 1 in a way that's compatible with a, an old earth. And so there's all kinds of sort of subviews like a theistic evolution or... Many people hold that the days of creation, the six days, are not literal. They're millions of years old. Now, I don't agree with that, but I certainly respect that. But let's, let's sort of stick with the broader subject here. Why did God create the earth in this chaotic, formless state of darkness? I'm going to suggest, and I think it was Calvin who said this, that perhaps it was to illustrate for us what redemption would ultimately look like. Because in many ways, without Christ... Our, our lives are, are dark and chaotic. But when the Spirit of God moves in our lives, He awakens us to light, and then He brings an orderliness and a renewal into the image of Christ. So it is interesting, though, the second verse of the Bible mentions the Holy Spirit. So we're already beginning to get a sense that this one God may exist in more than one person. certainly doesn't prove the Trinity. But the word moving over the surface of the water is an interesting word. Some translations say he hovered over the surface of the earth. And you sort of picture like a, a helicopter hovercraft. Um, the Hebrew word itself is, was used of, of, a, of a, a hen brooding over her chickens. And so we're sort of like, okay, what's the Holy Spirit doing as he's, as he's overseeing creation? One theologian suggested that he's, he's keeping matter together. He's, he's somehow still keeping it from just randomly spewing all apart. But there's, there's this sense of chaos and confusion. And so God says in verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning one day. Just a couple observations. Number one, this is not the sunlight. As most of you know, it wasn't until three days later that God created the sunlight. So, yet this was not God himself. Like some people go, oh, God just let his light shine. The Bible says God is light. The very glory of God emanates this light that's so strong. First Timothy 6 says God himself dwells in unapproachable light. 
And I don't think this is God himself, nor the sunlight, but it's this temporary light that God created. He just spoke, let there be light. Now, all of a sudden, this chaotic mass of water and darkness and confusion is illumined. Now, it wasn't like God goes, whoa, now we're talking. I can really see what I'm doing. Give me my glasses, right? Because the book of Psalms says darkness and light are both alike to God. So it wasn't as though he needed light. But later on, we're going to learn that the scriptures tell us that in wisdom, God created everything. And so oftentimes we'll find that things that God created were wisely chosen to illustrate truths about God and about redemption. And so the fact that God separated light from darkness, we could, we could sort of parse that out and go, well, what did that look like? You have this round earth and right down the middle, it's dark over here and light over here. Well, there's a lot of unanswered questions, but at least we can say this, that as you continue to read Scripture, darkness and light is going to be a very prominent theme. In fact, darkness is going to represent sin and rebellion and ultimately the place where people who choose to reject God spend eternity in outer darkness. Whereas light represents the knowledge of God, the holiness of God, the truth of God, and so in the New Testament, the apostles say, hey, this is the message that we learned from God. God is light, and there's no darkness with him. So if you want to have fellowship with him, you better come his way and come to the light. And, and that's a beautiful illustration of what it means to become a Christian. Because in John 3.16, when it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He's not simply saying, intellectually acknowledge there was a God and you'll be saved. You see, that's a call of repentance. It's a call of acknowledging that I have been away from God and I'm coming back to Jesus. So John 3.19 says, this is why people go to hell. This is the condemnation. Because men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. So, so we begin to understand as Christians that we live in a dark world. People are blinded and we're here to shine as light. And we're here to invite people to come to, to, to the Lord Jesus. And if you're a Christian, the Apostle Paul takes this very passage and he says, remember the God who spoke the light out of darkness? He says in 2 Corinthians 4, Satan has blinded all the world, but God who caused light to shine out of darkness caused the light of the gospel to shine in our hearts. And so every time someone gets saved and they start singing, I saw the light, we're reminded to go all the way back to the God of creation who spoke light out of darkness. So notice that it says God saw that the light was good. And each time he creates something, it says he saw that it was good. And so from a human standpoint, we're sort of going, oh, I put the clay in the kiln, and when it came out, did it, did it come out? Oh, boy, that was a good one. He didn't see that it was good for his benefit. He knew that it was good. But I think what he's teaching us here is that pause and reflect. Pause and reflect. I think that's one of the reasons why he did it in six days, so that we would pause and reflect. And then just one other thought, when he says, there was evening and morning one day. Those who argue that the six days of creation lasted unspecified millions of years usually argue that the word day can mean a long period of time. And I'm fine with that. If I were to say, back in my father's day, I used to drive across Texas in one day while it was day. Like, well, what does day mean? Well, it has three meanings. Day can mean undefined period, my father's day. It can mean a 24-hour period, like in one day. Or it could mean daylight, half a day, while it was day. 
but it gives me context that determines the meaning of a word. And the fact that God uses the number one, and he says evening and morning, seems to me to indicate that he's saying, don't miss it. This is a 24-hour period. Again, I don't, I, I don't think you're a heretic or you're dumb or anything like that. There's very brilliant men who don't agree with this. But I think there's some evidence. Whenever the word day is used throughout the whole Bible, you'll never see it used with a number where it didn't refer to a 24-hour period. So while day can mean an uninterrupted period of time, the fact that he uses one day is significant. By the way, notice there was evening and there was morning. See, in the Bible, a day doesn't begin in the morning. It begins in the evening. You're like, man, how'd they get that backwards? No, they didn't get it backwards. We've changed it. Not right or wrong. Jewish people haven't changed it. So that's why you're like, you want to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath? And you're like, yeah, what time are you going to pick me up on Saturday? And they go, I'll pick you up, not Saturday, I'll pick you up uh, what you would call Friday around 6 o'clock. And you're like, well, I thought you have it on Saturday. They go, we do. Because to Jewish people, the day begins with the evening. So what we would call Friday evening to them is that's the Sabbath morning. So it's not right or wrong. It's interesting that some cultures, the day begins in the evening. But it would be weird, right? You're like, what are you doing, honey? Well, I'm having my coffee here about 6 p.m., you know, getting ready for the day. It's like, oh, wait, the day. So just a cultural difference. So let's keep reading. So God creates the light. But then it says, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and he separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And he called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And you're like, what? So you got all this water. And God decides to take some of that water and move it up into a high sphere and the rest of it down below. And then everything in between he calls heaven. This, uh, the King James Bible calls it the firmament. It's the atmosphere in which we live. It's, it's what we look up to. But as you continue to develop in Scripture the idea of heaven, we find that God actually has three levels of heaven. That there's this earthly atmosphere that we call heaven. But then there's this second sphere in which Satan and demons and angelic beings sort of war. Paul speaks of this when he says there's principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And then far above all of that is what the scriptures call the third heaven. Second Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise where Jesus dwells. So, but this idea that there's now a heaven, I I look out and I see the expanse before me in the blue sky and I go, okay, God created that. Let's keep reading. Then God said, verse 9, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, it's interesting because, again, we're all looking at the same evidence. So, we know that the earth is about three-quarters water. But, you know, when you think about it, that water always wants to do a Sandy. It's always wanting to do a Katrina. The only reason it's not doing it all the time is because the Scriptures tell us that God speaks to the seas, and He says, thus far you may go. He puts boundaries on the seas, but the seas become a picture in Scripture of chaos being tossed to and fro. Interesting, in the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible says there will no longer be any sea. But we have this idea that, okay, God's going to bring out land masses out of the earth. So, so we take a place on this planet. We look at 
a great hole in the earth. It's called the Grand Canyon. And, and we go, wonder how that got there. Well, again, a naturalist or, or a theist would have the same evidence. But the naturalist would say, well, I just think randomly that was a little bit of water, the Colorado River, over a long period of time. However, the theist might say, is it possible that there was a whole lot of water that split that sucker wide open over a short period of time? Because in Genesis 6, when it describes the flood, it says that the waters that were below the earth burst forth. Because frankly, if it rained 40 days and 40 nights, it wouldn't, it wouldn't flood the world. So you go, well, it's the same evidence. Well, here's, a, here's an example, right? It, the Grand Canyon can't be caused by water. It just can't be by, by a, a large mass. You know, a, 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 a tremendous surge of water out of the earth can't be. But there's an AP article that says scientists now believe that there was water on Mars. Why? Because there are great canyons on Mars. So you go, wait a minute. Okay. So there's great canyons, but as far as we know, there's no water on Mars. No one's ever been able to discover any water on Mars. But we believe those canyons were caused by water. That, That would be a naturalistic view. But yet I can look at this earth that's three quarters water, and, and it has a canyon. We go, that couldn't have been caused by water. So you sort of see there's sometimes a bias in the way that people are approaching the possibility of creation. And I want you to understand that the war here isn't intellectual. It's volitional. We're going to close today in Romans 1, and we're going to understand that there's so much opposition to the idea of being created because if I acknowledge that I am created, then with that I acknowledge that I'm accountable to a creator. And it's very important. So when your kids say to you, I don't know if you, I believe what you believe, what they're often really saying is, I don't know if I want to behave the way that I would have to behave if I believe that I'm created. And so you're like, why are these atheists so militant? Because they know the consequences. In fact, Romans chapter 1 says, they know that those who practice such things are worthy of the judgment of God. But they keep on practicing and they hardly approve others. So when it comes to this whole idea of worldview, there's a tremendous battle going on, especially in American culture. Because if Satan can capture the minds of people and get them to believe we weren't created, then we're not accountable. And therefore, morals are sort of slippery and, you know, what's good for you or right for you might not be right for me. But if if this is the truth, then suddenly I go, wow, I better stop and go, man, I'm accountable to the Creator. All right, let's keep reading. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, food the trees and the earth, bearing seed after their kind, the seed in them, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and it was evening and morning the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the great light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night, and he made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and night and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Now again, when you're reading the Bible, if you have a presupposition that the Bible's not true, not the Word of God, you can find things to sort of go, see, here's an example. God called the sun the great light. 
we know that the sun is not nearly as big as the other stars. There's other stars that are way bigger than the sun. That proves the Bible's wrong. And I'm going, wait a minute. Let's take the idea of sunrise. Because this is another one that naturalistic critics say, the Bible's nonsense. The Bible says in Psalm 19 that the sun rises. Ha, 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 we know the sun doesn't rise. You know, they probably think the earth's flat. Well, yeah, I know the sun doesn't rise. But, but we often use what's called the language of appearance, right? So, so even though we know it doesn't rise, that the earth is rotating, we do know that it appears to be rising and setting. So people who attack the Bible, see, you can't believe this stuff. The sun's not the great light. Well, it, it's the great light to our appearance. And the sunrise is, the, is, is in our appearance, it looks like it's rising. Well, do you do that with the news? I, I often want to challenge people who are so vehement against the Bible. go, well, you know what? I saw on the news this morning, they said sunrise is going to be at 541. Did you pick up the phone and call them and say, you guys are liars because the sun doesn't rise. See, we sort of have this double standard. So with that in mind, we understand that God put the, the sun and the moon in place for a reason. And so we sing, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the skies. So, okay, God created them. It was evening and morning the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swim with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moved with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them. This is the first time he blessed them. You notice these are living creatures. He blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. Notice evening and morning the fifth day. And then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. I want you to notice that phrase, after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. Because naturalists will often argue that evolution proves that it wasn't created, that, that things are all in an evolving state. And I would say, yeah, I agree with that, as long as it's at what we would call the micro level. When there were the first two dogs, it's not as though all dogs after that look the same thing. There's lots of evolution within species, right? But, but... But this idea that there's this macroevolution between species and half of us grew up reading textbooks that had pictures of transition fossil forms that show, you know, that we were a reptile and then we lost our tail and then we were fish and then we grew up and then we were a monkey and then we evaded, you know. And, and that's taught like fact. That's nonsense. There's huge holes in that whole idea of transitional fossils. So again, I'm not saying they're idiots. But don't think that to be a Christian and to hold to a creation worldview or a six-day earth that, that you sort of have to take your brain down and go, I know I'm just kind of stupid, but that's what I believe. Okay? So, God makes the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, God saw that it was good. But now God's going to do something different. On the sixth day, he's going to have a consultation. He says, let us. Let us make man. A lot of, you know, like, why for that one did he stop and have a consultation? And while we're on the subject, who's he talking to? You know, isn't that kind of, when people speak in third person, it's kind of prideful, right? You go, um, the pastor will be speaking at the synod. And you're like, who's he talking about? Your pastor. You have to be proud. You go, oh, he's talking about me, right? Stupid, right? 
Because some go, well, God just is doing that to show his greatness. He says us as a plural of majesty. And I'm like, well, there's really no documented evidence of that from that time. But I think a bigger thing would be to say this. The Jewish people would say he was talking to angels, right? Because God can't exist in more than one person. So he must have been talking to angels. Let us make man in our image. But I think there's two problems with that. Number one, nowhere in the Bible do we learn that angels had creative power to speak things into existence out of nothing. But secondly, there's no evidence in the Bible that we're created in the image of angels. Now, ladies, I know this is going to be tough, but when your husband calls you angel, it may just be because you're harping a lot. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know. <laughs> don't shoot the messenger. I'm just saying, we're not made in the, in the image of angels. So, so, what God does is he consults within the triune Godhead and he decides to form man in his image and likeness. Now, there's a ton of ink on this idea. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And, and Calvin used to say, those anthropomorphites do believe that there's something physical in our appearance that reflects God. Can't be like that. God's a spirit. And I'm going, I'm not so sure about that. I think there's probably some things about our physical appearance that reflect God. When, when, when Saddam Hussein used to put little statues of himself all over the, the earth, it was because he wanted people to see something that would remind them of him. Right? Of course, isn't that kind of what God's doing? He's saying, let, let us make man in our image, and we're going to put him down on the earth, and he's going to reflect God. And it's possible that he simply meant our inner being is going to reflect the image of God, but I'm not so sure that there aren't physical things about us that may reflect God. But surely the primary thing is our inner being. That to be created in the image of God means that we have dignity and value, that we're not just a chunk of flesh, that unborn babies are not just fetuses and tissues. In fact, God takes this so seriously that he introduced capital punishment in Genesis 9. He said, whoever kills someone shall be put to death because in the image of God he was made. So this idea of euthanasia or, you know, let's get rid of the, you know, or, or this Aryan race, or let's just get rid of the weak, is, this is terrible wickedness because each person, no matter how deformed or decrepit or, or demented they are, made in the image of God, there's a value to them. Humanity has a great value. So they're not equal to the whale. So we're not, we're not investing our resources in saving the, the baby sparrows as much as in saving lost souls and, and people have been made in the image of God. And then you'll note that God adds that being made in the image of God included gender, male and female, and, and to cross those gender barriers is to lead to confusion. Paul says in Romans 1 that men left the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire to one another. We'll talk about that later. But then he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky. So now he gives man a job. He says, I want you to rule. I want you to have dominion. So man and the son are both governors, but Man in the image of God with a spirit able to commune with God is now sort of God's appointed prince of the earth. And we're going to find that Adam failed in that. And so Christ, the second Adam, came to subdue the earth and to rule over it in a way that Adam failed. But knowing that, that under the image of God we're to reproduce and to subdue the earth, let's keep reading. God says, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it's food for you, and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was pure, it was so. 
So everybody back then was vegans. Right? There was no such thing as eating flesh. They didn't eat flesh till after Genesis 9 when they got off the, the, the boat. God says, I'm going to put the fear of animals in you, make it a little harder for you to get dinner. And then he says, but you can eat flesh. So this doesn't mean that it's better to be a vegan. It's just that's how they did it in the beginning. And then God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so there's this sense that, man, you go, all right, I know that. What do I do with that? Well, I want us to close with some, some reflection on some of the implications of this whole idea of creation. Okay, number one, as Christians, we're taught in the Scriptures to reflect on and meditate on creation and certain of God's attributes in relation to them. I'm just going to give you three real quick. So as, as we go on this new year, as every time I'm interacting with creation, I'm reminded certain things about God. Number one, I'm reminded of his wisdom. Jeremiah said it this way. God made heavens and the earth by his power, and he established the world by his wisdom. Right? So all throughout our lives, the earth is a library reminding us how God wise is. I broke my ribs once, and it punctured my lung. Actually, someone else broke my ribs. I was an innocent victim. But anyway, I, I said to the doctor, I have a pointy broken rib right now. I said, and a punctured lung. I had to get this tube in there to let the air out. I said, well, the rest of my life, that rib keeps poking me in the lung and puncturing my lung again. He goes, no. He goes, immediately after a bone breaks like that, the body, your body, forms a gel over sharp, jagged bones. Now, a naturalist would say, well, boy, evolution did good. And I'm going, praise God. Praise God. He's so wise. So as we look at creation, we praise God for his wisdom. Secondly, we praise him for his power. I sing the mighty power of God. This should be the heart and soul of, as we think about our God, to go, our God created the heavens and the earth. This is how Isaiah said it. I love this verse. Isaiah says, we do this sometimes. Lift up your eyes on high and see God who created these stars, the one who leads them forth by their number because of the greatness of the might of his strength. Not one of those stars is missing. And so as you read the minor prophets, they would, or the prophets, they would go back to creation and they would remind us of the power of God. I love this verse from Jeremiah. Listen to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 32, 17. You know, we're going, oh God, I got problems. My kid's a mess. So-and-so's an addict. I lost my job. Blah, blah, blah. My gingivitis, my arthritis, my diverticulitis. And, and we just get down on life and, and we don't think anything can happen. This is what Jeremiah said. Ah, Lord God. Write this verse down. Put this one on your refrigerator. Instead of, it's not about you. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too difficult for you. Did I get it? That's it? Amen. Nothing's too difficult for God. So let that awaken your prayer life. This is how the early church prayed in Acts chapter 4. When they were being persecuted, Acts chapter 4 says they got together and they said, Oh, God, you made the heavens and the earth. Now stretch forth your hand. And so we're called in Scripture to think of the power of God in creation. Third, think about the glory of God in creation. Right now there are angels in heaven, day and night the Bible says, that they are saying, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the fact is, it's only because of our darkened, depraved minds that we don't see the glory of God in everything. It's only because of sin that we all don't wake up every morning and worship and glorify God day and night. 
But God's going to rectify that. The prophets look forward to a day in Habakkuk 2.14. He says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. When Jesus comes back, we're going to get it. Everybody's going to get it. And everybody's going to see the glory of God in creation. But as Christians, we have that privilege now in this world to sing and celebrate and study creation and meditate on his wonderful works and glorify our wise and powerful God. Secondly, we can use creation as a way to share our faith. There's a lot of people who don't believe in God. They're like, I never seen God. He he never came down here to show me. But as as Tim Keller says, but his fingerprints, he's left clues all over the universe. And so the orderliness of creation. There are so many things in creation. Even C.S. Lewis in his classic Mere Christianity, he had one shot to try to convince people there was a God. And so he took the idea of a moral conscience. And remember in book one, he says, maybe man's ability to discern right from wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. And so we can use creation as an apologetic to say, hey, you know what? You, you don't have to be stupid to believe that there's an intelligent designer. That's not going to save people, but it's going to point them towards Christ. And so I want to encourage you that we need to wake from our worldly naturalistic slumber when we're watching the news and they go, Mother Nature and Darwin and, and so forth. And we need to learn to shout and sing and praise God for his creation. The psalmist said, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. And you're like, oh, that's kind of fanatical. Well, you know what? You better get used to it because when we get to heaven, that's what we're going to do. Revelation chapter 4, listen to what we're going to sing in heaven. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power because you did create all things. And because of thy will, they existed and were created. So when that alarm goes off in the morning, instead of going... The psalmist said, I lay down, I worked, and I slept, and I awoke for the Lord sustained me. You're my glory, you're the lifter of my head. We're learning in a godless world who ignores God to go, wait, that's not what God designed us to do. And so the third thing I want you to remember is this. We have to remind ourselves that this world is in a rebellion against its created order. That we are swimming upstream because most people don't live this way. Even religious people, they're burger kinging it. They're doing it their way. Don't let religious people make you think that they're doing it God's way. That's just another form of rebellion when man forms their own religious system. Romans chapter 1 says, Across the board, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because they suppress the truth about God. What truth? That he's their creator and that we're accountable to him. And it's inexcusable. Romans chapter 1 says this, for since the creation of the world, his, his power is clearly seen so that men are without excuse. So you go, but they're religious. You know, God's going to count that, right? No, he counts that as rebellion. This is what he says. Because even though people know God, they don't honor him as God. They don't give thanks to God. But they worship and serve his creation rather than the creator, right? So this place might, might not be packed with shouting people, but I'll tell you what. There's going to be football stadiums and and televisions packed with shouting people worshiping creation and not worshiping and serving and glorifying our Creator. And we have this privilege, and we're not here throwing stones at them. We're going, dude, I was blind like you. I was lost like you. I lived without God like you. But He opened my eyes. And now I understand that I'm being transformed 
And I'm trying to persuade people that you're believing a lie. That there is a God and you better turn to Him while you can. And that He will forgive you if you repent and come to Him through Jesus in the Gospel. So, my final thought is, as we think of creation, learn to, to, to find within creation reminders of the Gospel. I'm going to leave you with Jesus. I'm going to give you some examples. The first one is this. God takes this chaotic, darkened mass of confusion, and by the Spirit, He orders it and gives it life. And that's what He does with us. Secondly, Paul appealed, as we saw. He said, the same God who spoke light out of darkness. We can praise God that He caused the light of the gospel to shine in our hearts. We're not saved because we're smarter than the average bear. We're yogi bears, and we read when we were four years old, evidence that demands a verdict, and we were persuaded by the plausible arguments of the resurrection. We're Christians because the sovereign grace of God shone the light of the gospel in our hearts. And so that reminds me to praise Jesus and then to go, okay, saved by grace, been enlightened, now I want to be a light in this dark world. Paul says, do everything without grumbling and complaining so that you can shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I can go out into this world who's darkened and living in sin. And like the moon, I can borrow the light of Christ and let my light shine before men as I love my neighbors and as I love people I work with, as I reach out and, and draw them and pray for them to come to the light. And then finally, I can live in the light. The Bible says God is light and in Him there's no darkness. And even though I live in a world that's rebellious and and refusing to acknowledge their Creator. And by the way, the Bible says the wrath of God is coming on them. Those of us who have been saved by grace, the Bible says we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So I look around and I go, this is a beautiful earth, but it's messed up. And I'm part of the problem. But Christ and the gospel is the solution. And so this year I want to live under this created God, saved by His grace, letting the light of the gospel shine through us as a church to reach this darkened world. I'm excited because we're talking about the living God. The same one who spoke creation is the same one who saved us by His grace. The same one that we're going to see one day. And He's the God that wants to demonstrate His power through our weakness. And so as we close this morning, Jeremiah says, Lord, you formed the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing's too difficult. What is it this year that you're going, I can't take it. Can we lift that up to Christ this morning and say, Lord, I can't take it, but you can. Nothing is too difficult for you. And this morning, I want to remind you this, that time is running out. You know what struck me in the book of Revelation? You know what the last gospel message is? Before Christ returns? This stunned me. Revelation 14 says this, I saw an angel. Now, I take this in the future. Not everyone does, but I see this in the future. I saw, because the Bible says this gospel will be preached to the whole world by the time again. Listen to this. I saw an angel, Revelation 14, 6, and he was flying in mid-heaven, preaching an eternal gospel. What is he going to say? This is what he said. Hey, you people down there who are ignoring God and living worldly lives, who forget about God, listen to this. Fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that's in it. You get it? God loves this world. 
He loves people. And most of them are on their way to hell. God is the road that leads to destruction. And God says, listen, turn to me. And I want you to do that this morning. If you've never turned to God and repent your faith and said, Lord, I get it now. I've just been, I've been Burger king it my way. But I come to you because you love me. And I believe that Jesus died. And I, and I worship him now. And I, I submit to him. And I believe in him. And I invite him to be my Lord and Savior. I want to give him glory. Do you do that this morning? Because if you don't, the Bible says you'll spend eternity away from the presence of the Lord in utter darkness from the lake of fire. And God's not willing that any will perish. So come where you can and give your life to Christ. And those of us who believe, we have a worldview. I know where I came from. I know why I'm here. And thank God we know that Jesus is coming again. Amen? So let's pray. Father, as we begin the new year, we praise you that Christ Lord of all, and that our God made the heavens and the earth, and nothing is too difficult for Him. So I pray for our struggling flock. Lord, we all slug it out in life. I'll be the first one in line to say, God, be merciful. Being an American, it's so easy to be an idolater. It's so easy to neglect prayer and worship. It's so easy to forget that creation is not the end in itself, but it's a, a tool to glorify You. May we sing and celebrate our awesome Creator. Thank you that you weren't just a far-off God, but you sent Jesus. And we end as a Christian family, worshiping the risen Christ, maker of heaven and earth. And we look forward to your coming. But as you send us forth, Father, this year, may we shine with the light of the Holy Spirit. May we live godly lives of prayer, godly lives of love, And may we advance the gospel and serve you faithfully until you come and make all things new. And Father, we ask that those who are here without Christ would make their peace, would come. If you want to come to Christ, do that right now. And let us know if you've made that decision to follow Christ. God, be merciful to us and speak forth the words of life to this congregation, we pray in Jesus' name. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll out.